Morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you again today. As you can tell from the scripture reading, we are not in Luke today. Uh, we're starting a new series, and I'm going to start by saying something really, really controversial, which I know is probably not the wisest decision since I haven't seen you guys in three months, but I'm going to do it anyways. And I need you all to promise me that no matter what I say, you'll hear me out. Can we do that? No one's going to walk, uh, walk out of here based on what I say right now? Okay. You ready for it? This on the screen, when we change the slide, this is a football. Now I know a lot of you think a football is a round thing that you kick with your foot. But where I come from, we call that a soccer ball and we call this a football. And you may be wondering why on earth is Eric starting out the sermon today by telling us this thing that's clearly not a football is a football. And that is a great question. And to answer that question, I'm going to tell you a story. The year was 1961. The Green Bay Packers, an American football team, had been minutes away from winning the championship the previous season. But they had blown the lead. They had a chance to take it back, and they just couldn't. And they lost. And a few months went by of their summer offseason, and then they gathered again for training camp for the next year to get ready for the new season. And it was pretty much all the same players coming back. So they gathered in the locker room and they expected their coach to come in and be like, all right, we're almost good enough last year. Here's a couple new plays to just get us over the edge. And then we can be the best team in the league. We can win the championship this year. But that's not what happened. Their coach, a guy named Vince Lombardi, he had different ideas. He walked into the locker room. He held up one of these things and he said, gentlemen, this is a football, which in a football locker room, you'd assume everyone should know that, right? That's, that's like the most basic thing in the sport of football. But he started from the very, very, very most basic things. And through that training camp, he worked their way up. He covered the basics, things that they learned as little kids, things like how to block, how to tackle. He used the exact same playbook from the year before and just started at page one, walking everyone through it page by page, play by play, going very, very slowly. At one point in practice, one of his best players teased him and he was like, ah, coach, could you slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. And the coach smiled and then just kept on doing what he was doing, going very slowly through the basics. The coach realized something very important. He realized the key to success as a team is not unrolling lots of shiny and new things. It's just being deeply grounded in the basics and the fundamentals. And so he covered those over and over and over again until his team could not get those wrong. Because he knew if you just do the basic things really, really well, you'll win. And it, it worked. His team won the championship that year. And in five of the seven following years, they were a really, really good team. So why do I tell this story? Because I think in a lot of ways, the church is like a football team. Week in, week out, you come in, you, you often do more or less the same things. And you just can reach a point where you assume we, we know what we're doing. We know why we're doing it. And we rarely step back and ask the bigger questions of why does the church exist in the first place? What is the church supposed to be accomplishing? And I've realized during, during the COVID season, 
it's just totally tossed everything up in the air and changed the way that we do everything. And it's made us sort of rethink, well, what does it mean to be the church if we can't meet every week in person? You know, is, is online church service the same as a real church service? Should we be doing more to innovate the way that we have church services? And these are good questions. They're things that the church should be talking about and thinking through. But as we discuss them, it's essential that we have the fundamentals in place first, that we understand why we exist in the first place and what God wants us to be. Otherwise, we can get so excited about talking about all these questions that we lose sight of why we exist as a church in the first place. And just like a really good football team can become a great football team by just going back and zeroing in and focusing on the basics, I think a really good church can become even more effective at doing what God calls us to do and being what God calls us to be by reviewing the fundamentals of what does it mean for us to be a church. And so in light of this, we are going to take several weeks to just ask this question. What does it mean for us to be the church? What is the church? Why does the church exist? What, what makes a church the church? What does a church do? And I realize with the fourth wave seemingly on its way already, we may not be able to meet in person for all of these, but that's exactly why we're asking the question right now, right? Because this is a time where it's really important for us to just get back to these basics and understand who we are and why we are that way. And then at the end of the year, we'll come back and wrap up Luke. Our goal is to be done with Luke before the end of 2020. We'll see if that happens. Cool. So today we're going to start the series on the church by not talking about the church itself, which might seem weird, but here's why. If we're going to have any type of productive conversation about the church and what it should be, we need to be on the same page about who or what has authority to determine that. Because if we disagree on who or what has authority, we're just going to be talking past each other all the time. Who or what gets final say in determining the answers to all these questions is going to shape all the conversations we have coming in the next few weeks. And so before we ask those questions, we have to agree on this more basic fundamental question. And here's what we're talking about today. This is a Bible. This is a Bible. That's where we're going. What we're going to see is that God has ultimate say in the church, and he speaks to us through the Bible. Or more simply, God's word is foundational in God's church. God's word is foundational in God's church. We'll see where it comes from, what it does, and how to interact with it. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to just be in the same room as one another, for what a blessing that is, for how amazing you are in allowing us to meet and giving us your words that we can hear from you and in rescuing us and saving us through Jesus. And I pray that you would speak to us today, that you'd transform us more and more into your image. Help us to know you and love you more and to be the people that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, we're going to look at where the Bible, God's word, comes from. And very basic and simply, it comes from God. That's what makes it God's word. We see it in today's passage in verse 16. This is all scripture is breathed out by God. You ever stopped and thought about what that means? The words in the Bible come directly from the mouth of God. Has anyone here ever wished that God would speak to you? I have. 
Have you ever had like a big decision coming up and been like, man, I I just wish God would speak to me. Even if it's not the answer to the question, just something. Yeah? If all scripture is breathed out by God, do you know what that means? God has spoken to us. And we have the ability to hear exactly what he says to us. We have the ability to hear God's voice anytime we want by opening up a book. Is it just me or is that crazy? Like, I think there's a power here that we often just ignore in our lives because we don't need to do some special ceremony to hear God's voice. We don't need to accomplish great feats to hear God's voice. We just need to open a book, the Bible, and hear what he has said to us. That's amazing, right? And I realize we in this room have different people coming from different backgrounds. Some of us probably grew up in Christian homes where we were taught that the Bible is God's word from childhood. For me to say the Bible is breathed out by God and the voice of God speaks to us in the Bible, we're like, yeah, obviously, what else would the Bible be? Some of us here might be a little more naturally skeptical. Or some people in this room might not be Christians yet. And if that's you, you might feel like there's a hole in my logic here. Like, Eric, you're pointing to the Bible to tell us that the Bible is God's word. That is circular reasoning. You're trying to use the Bible to prove that the Bible should be listened to. And on one level, yes, it's true, that is circular reasoning. But with anything in life that claims to be an ultimate source of truth, we need to use some level of circular reasoning. So if someone wants to prove that reason and logic should be the ultimate source of truth in life, how are they going to do that? They're going to make a logical argument. They're going to argue for logic with logic, and they're going to argue in circles. If you try and argue for an ultimate source of truth without arguing in circles, your argument is going to be self-defeating. So back in the 1900s, there was this big scientific movement called logical positivism. You don't need to know that name. But basically what they said is the ultimate source of truth in life is science and experimentation and observation. Now here's the problem with that. You can't prove that scientifically. So they would try and reason for why science should be the ultimate source of truth. They would use logic to argue for science as the ultimate source of truth. And of course, the big response everyone would have is, well, can you prove that logical argument scientifically? No, you can't. Your argument became self-defeating because you weren't able to essentially argue in circles for it. Uh, It it becomes a self-defeating argument. So all arguments for something being our ultimate source of truth require some level of circular reasoning. So how do we distinguish which one's true? We have to examine the arguments from the inside and see whether it's consistent, whether it holds up within its own system. And when we do that, what do we find about the Bible? We find that the Bible is completely internally consistent. It has strong historical support. It affirms that there's such a thing as truth and that truth is knowable. It roots truth with a capital T, truth, in the person of God. And it says that you and I can know the truth, not fully, but truly, because we exist in God's image. Therefore, we are capable of comprehending truth. And even crazier, it roots its big truth claim in a historical event that can be fact-checked. So the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, don't know if you know this, the Bible says 
The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the ultimate test. If that did not happen, everything in this book is a lie. The book should be thrown away and we should ignore it. But if Jesus rose from the dead, that's the ultimate proof that he truly is the son of God, that everything he said is true, that everything he said about God's word, the Bible, which he thought of very, very, very highly as the exact words of God, if he rose from the dead, that's accurate, that's true. And so the Bible provides a criteria that we can use to test its truth claims, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, or you're skeptical about whether the Bible can really be the source of ultimate truth in life, my invitation to you is examine it, test it. Look at the world through the lens that the Bible provides. Examine whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If you want resources to help you with that, come talk to me. I would, I would love to help connect you with some resources to help you in that examination. Because understanding that the Bible is God's word and comes from God is so crucial and foundational and essential for us to live life properly. But for those of us who do believe that the Bible is God's word, the truth that God's voice is speaking to us in this book has some huge, huge implications for us in our lives. First, it's essential that we listen to God's voice. If God has spoken, we need to listen to what he has to say to us. The God of the universe has a powerful voice. In the first chapter of the Bible, we're told that the voice of God speaks into existence everything in the universe. It's a powerful voice, huh? And that same God who spoke the universe into existence has spoken to us in a book. He has a powerful voice and we ignore that voice at our own peril. Actually, we see in verse 13 of today's passage that if we ignore his voice, we're gonna end up listening to lies. He says that if we're ignoring God's voice, we'll be deceived ourselves and we will end up deceiving others. We'll listen to lies, believe those lies, and then pass on those lies to other people if we're not building our lives around the truth of God's word. Those are our options. Believe lies and spread lies or listen to God's voice and believe him. There is no third option. The Bible is clear. Leading, building our lives around lies, it leads to harmful ways of living. It leads to destructive behavior. And in the end, it results in judgment. While building our lives around God's truth leads to proper living, productive behavior, and in the end, reward. I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds like a no-brainer to listen to God's word and build our lives around it, right? But it's not necessarily as easy as it sounds. Remember, God is God. We are not. God knows everything. We can only see a part of the picture. God is perfect and we are sinful. And therefore, there are going to be things in the Bible that we don't want to hear and we don't want to obey. Can everyone agree with that? There are things in the Bible that you don't want to hear or obey. It's definitely true for me. Things in the Bible that just, I wish that wasn't in there sometimes, you know? And if we want to build our lives around God's word and we come to those parts of the Bible, what do we do with them? Well, if the Bible really comes from God, we obey even if we don't like what it says. Think about it. If we automatically agreed with everything the Bible says and lived that way without God having to tell us to live that way, we wouldn't need the Bible in the first place. 
actually the parts of the Bible that just rub us the wrong way. The parts of the Bible that we wish weren't in there are actually the parts we need the most. Because those are the parts where our sinfulness and our limited perspective is coming into direct contact with God's perfect, all-knowing, all-loving power. That's how we grow, is by bringing our broken and sinful and fallen understanding of the world under God's authority. And that's going to be really key as we look at what the Bible says about the church in the coming weeks. Because my guess is there are going to be things the Bible says about the church that are uncomfortable to us or difficult to us. And we need to decide in advance, are we willing to listen to and obey God when he says things we don't like? Or are we going to ignore him and assume that we know best? For us to be the church God wants us to be, we must be willing to give his word ultimate authority in our lives and in the church. It's true for us as individuals. It's true for us as a community. We don't become more like Jesus simply by reading the parts of the Bible we agree with and ignoring the rest. We become more like Jesus by recognizing every word in the Bible comes directly from the mouth of God. And by responding to it as we would respond to God, if he was standing right here in front of us, speaking the words to our face at this moment, the Bible comes from God. So that's where the Bible comes from. Next, let's look at what does it do? And Paul tells us in chapter three, verses 15 through 17, what God's word does. If we had to summarize it, I think a great way to summarize it is to say it benefits us. Every word of the Bible is written for our good. Every word of the Bible teaches us how to live lives that honor God. And how does it do this? Well, in verse 15, Paul says it does this by making us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, the Bible isn't just a list of commands or a how-to manual that teaches us the best way to live. Yes, it does have a lot of commands. It does teach us the best way how to live, but the commands and the instructions in the Bible all serve a deeper purpose. Paul says in Galatians 3, the reason God gives us all the laws in the Bible is to point us to Jesus. The goal of the laws and commands in the Bible isn't that we would keep them all perfectly and then stand before God and say, I did it. Look at me, how awesome I am. No, the goal is that we would try and fail and try again and fail again and try again and fail again and eventually reach the point where we give up and say, I can't do this. And then we'd see Jesus who did. And we would say, Jesus, you're amazing. You're wonderful. I trust in you. I love you. I believe you. And we run to Jesus and give our lives to him. The whole Bible is written to get us to the point where we trust in Jesus to forgive us for our sins, to do for us what we could not do, to give us the relationship with God that we we need, but we can't earn for ourselves. So the Bible makes us wise for salvation, but that's not all it does. Verse 16 tells us more of what the Bible does. Paul lists out in verse 16, four things that all scripture is profitable for, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, teaching is giving instruction on how to live life. Reproof is expressing disapproval when we do wrong things. 
Correcting is showing us how to do things better when we're doing them wrong. And training in righteousness is teaching us to live in a way that pleases God. And why do we need these things? Well, in verse 17, he tells us, so that we can be complete or competent, equipped for every good work. The goal of the Bible is not just that we'd be able to answer a bunch of trivia at at quiz night about the Bible. The goal of the Bible is not that we would just shut ourselves off from the world and go live in seclusion so we can read the Bible and pray all day long. The goal of the Bible is that we would be transformed by God's words into people who love God and love others and who demonstrate that love through our actions. The Bible is an incredibly practical book. It teaches us how to live our lives in a way that honors God. And as we talk about all that the Bible does, realize there is not a single word in the Bible that isn't teaching us all these things. Every single word of the Bible is breathed out by God. Old Testament, New Testament, no word is wasted. Now, yes, we need to put in work to make sure that we're interpreting and understanding those words properly. But when we understand them properly, every single word of the Bible comes from God and benefits us when we understand it in the way that we're meant to understand it. Every single word of the Bible is written to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every single word of the Bible is written to instruct us, to make us complete or competent, to equip us for good works. Now, obviously, some parts of the Bible are clearer than others for this. So if you read something like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, It's pretty easy to see how a verse like that makes you wise for salvation through Jesus and equips you for good works, right? But then we're reading through the Old Testament and it's like another genealogy, another census count. How does that make me wise for salvation through Christ Jesus? Are you sure, Paul, that every single word in this book is useful for these things? The genealogy is going to make me wise for salvation through Jesus? Really? And Paul is saying, exactly, yes. Think about it. Why were the genealogies and the census counts included in the Bible in the first place? It's because our God works in history. The genealogies and the census counts of Israel show the things being written in the Bible are real life events. They're not just made up stories like Greek and Roman mythology. They happened in our world. The genealogies and the censuses in the Bible show that God keeps his promises. Remember his promise to Abraham where he said, I'm going to multiply your offspring? We have historical records of how God did that and what the numbers look like at different points in time. That's incredible. If we know that God works in history and that God keeps his promises, it might not help us pronounce the names in the genealogies but it helps make us wise for salvation and live the lives that God calls us to live because we know more of the character of God. We know that he's trustworthy and he's reliable. And so we can listen to him today and follow him in what he calls us to do right now. The Bible is written to transform us every single word of it. It shows us the path to spiritual life through knowing Jesus. It teaches us how to live lives that honor God and it's vital to us. 
if we want to have any hope of being the individuals or the church community that God wants us to be. There's one more thing about God's word that we need to see in this passage, and that's how we as a church are called to interact with it. So for this, we'll look at the start of chapter four. And what do we see right there? He says, I charge you. A charge is a really, really, really serious command. It's like I command you and then I charge you. It's intense. He's being very serious. And realize as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, Paul is about to die and he knows it. This is the last letter he's ever written. And chapter four is his closing instructions. Now in a letter writing culture, the end of the letter is really important. Because when you put the letter down, whatever was at the end of the letter is going to be what's freshest on your mind. So you put really, really, really important instructions at the end of the letter so that they will absolutely get done. So this is Paul's last letter and it's the end of that letter. So this is like the one big thing that Paul wants to make sure is passed on when he is dead. The one thing Timothy needs to know to lead the church properly in Paul's absence. And Paul doesn't just charge Timothy, he, he adds a little bit more to just make it weightier. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Remember Timothy, God the Father and Jesus are watching you. They are gonna hold you accountable for whether or not you do what I'm commanding you to do right here. And then he talks about Jesus appearing in his kingdom. He's saying, look, Jesus is coming back. There's going to be judgment. Eternity is at stake in whether or not you obey the words that I'm about to write to you. I think that's kind of a big deal. If you're in Timothy's shoes, how do you feel about this? Are you like absolutely definitely gonna obey Paul? I, I would. And if you're in Paul's place, what would you say to Timothy here? The one last parting instruction, the really, really, really big thing that he needs to know to get it right in leading the church when you're dead. What would you say? Maybe something like love God and love your congregation. And that's what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, right? Maybe something like lead well or learn to listen. Maybe something like make disciples. I mean, that was, that was Jesus parting instructions when he left the church, right? And Paul doesn't say any of these things. You know what he says? Preach the word. He says to this young pastor, if you want to lead the church properly, the one big, huge thing that you need to do, preach the word. That's why the sermon is such a big part of our services on Sundays. But this command needs some unpacking. Because out of all the commands Paul could have given right here, why this one? Why not just copy and paste something that Jesus said? Those are definitely good, right? Well, it's because out of all the other good things we want to see in the life of the church, they're fueled by God's word. God's word makes us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. God's word makes us complete and competent. God's word equips us for good deeds. If we wanna be a church that loves one another and loves God, we need God's word. If we wanna be a church that makes disciples, we need God's word. Without the word, the church will starve spiritually. The word of God equips us to live as the people of God. And preaching is one of God's primary chosen ways of communicating and applying the truth of his word to his people. 
And realize this command, it's, it's written in a letter to a pastor. The command to preach the word is primarily for pastors right here, but it includes important implications for the congregation as well. Because if preaching is so vital and central to the life of the church, few things can be more important to the average church member than learning how to listen to a sermon, right? If, if preaching is so central, then listening must also be very, very central. So let me ask you, have you ever thought about how to listen properly to a sermon? We'll take a few minutes and just look at three things from this passage that talk to us about keys to listening properly to a sermon, okay? First, listen for the word. Notice Paul in verse two, he doesn't just tell Timothy to preach. He tells him, preach the word. Why is this distinction necessary? Because my wisdom and my insight on life lack the power of God's word. Merely human words cannot make you wise for salvation. Merely human words cannot make you complete and equipped for every good work. If I'm getting up here and just sharing Eric's thoughts on life and ignoring God's word, then I am harming you, not helping you, no matter how entertaining and fun I might be. We need God's word. The power in preaching comes from the fact that the words that I'm sharing with you come from God's word, not my wisdom. If what I'm saying up here is not coming from the Bible, that's a problem. Like, I don't know if you notice this. Every Sunday before the sermon, we have someone get up and read the passage that that week's sermon is gonna be about. We had Satish do it today. Thanks, Satish, you did a great job. But when I get up, all I'm doing is explaining what that passage says and means and how that connects to our lives. Now, obviously to do this, I need to think through the logical implications of what that passage is saying. But basically every week when I get up to preach, I have two goals. Goal number one, get up, teach the Bible, show how it applies to our lives so we can love God and obey God more that week. Goal number two, model for you how to read the Bible for yourself so you can learn to read it and apply it in your own lives throughout the week when I'm not up here preaching to you. That's why I try to have pretty much everything I say come directly from the passage we're looking at that week. I'll sometimes draw in from other passages to clarify things. But if I'm saying something that's not coming from God's word, that's a problem. And I'm begging you, like, be my fact checkers. Hold me accountable. If you hear me saying something that's not in line with the Bible, come talk to me about it after service, please. Don't shout it out in the middle of service. The elders have permission to interrupt the sermon if I'm going way off the rails. Everyone else, please find me after service and talk to me about it. But I need that because I'm not perfect. I can make mistakes. When I do make mistakes, I need people who can point that out to me so that I can grow and we as a church can grow from hearing God's word taught accurately. So if you hear me saying something and you're like, I don't think that actually lines up with what the Bible says, come talk to me about it. If you hear me saying something and you're like, I don't know where in the passage you got that, Eric, come talk to me about it so we can learn and grow together. And in terms of fact-checking sermons, two really, really practical steps that I would recommend. First, when I'm preaching or anyone else is preaching, have the passage open in front of you so you can glance down at it and see like, oh yeah, I see where he's getting that from. 
can be in a physical Bible, it can be in your phone, but have the passage open in front of you as the sermon is being preached so you can see whether the things being said are actually coming from the Bible. And then second, take notes on sermons. I know when we finished school, we were like, I never want to take notes again. But taking notes is really powerful. It helps us remember what was said in the sermon so that one, we can apply it to our lives. But two, we can go back during the week and check what was said in the sermon versus what the passage says to make sure that we're seeing the same things there as what was preached in the sermon. So have the passage open in front of you as the sermon is being preached and take notes. That's really, really helpful. So that's the first key to listening properly to a sermon. Listen for the word. The second key to listening properly to a sermon is listen for Jesus. Now, Paul told us in chapter three, verse 15, the scriptures make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. So if someone's preaching, whether it's me or someone else, and the preacher is not showing us how Jesus is the key to making sense of that passage, then they're not preaching the passage properly. All scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, even the genealogies and the censuses, they're written to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That means every passage of the Bible, every passage finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So if a preacher just gets up and says, here are all the things you need to do without pointing you to Jesus in the process, they're not preaching properly. So that's key number two, listen for Jesus. We have listen for the word, listen for Jesus. And then key number three, listen and obey even when it hurts. If you look at verse two right here, Paul tells Timothy to do three things in his preaching, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. All these things hurt. Reproving is helping people recognize what they're doing wrong. Now, I'm going to ask a question. How many of you like it when someone comes along and says, hey, you're doing something wrong? Nobody does, because it hurts. Rebuking means expressing disapproval for wrong ways of living. How many of you like it when someone comes and says, you're living wrong, I disapprove of that? Nobody does, because it hurts. Exhorting means calling people to live properly. How many of you like it when someone has to call you to live properly because you're living improperly? Nobody does. It hurts. All the things that Paul says are key ingredients of preaching in verse two, they are painful ingredients. Nobody likes being told that they need to change. But Paul says preaching must include these painful parts if it's going to be faithful to God's word. And he knows that we don't like listening to those parts of sermons. If you look at verses three and four, he warns us there's going to be temptation to leave true preachers of God's word so we can get happier, more positive sermons that just say what we want to hear on a more regular basis. And I mean, we all have smartphones with the podcast app on it. How easy is it to just collect preachers who say only the things we want to hear? Now, don't get me wrong. I love the podcast app. There are lots of great preachers out there. But it's so easy to just collect people who say all the things we want to hear. And Paul warns us, that's dangerous. If they're not preaching God's word in a way that sometimes hurts, that's dangerous for us. He says in verse four, when we ignore God's word 
and collect teachers who just tell us what we want to hear, that we turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, when I hear that language of turning away and wandering off, the image that comes to mind is hiking, like turning away from the trail and just wandering off on the mountain. Do you realize that on Lantau Peak, right out here behind where we're meeting right now, people have died from doing that? You leave the trail, the fog rolls in, you can't see where your next step is, boom, over the edge of a cliff, done. Leaving the path and wandering off it's dangerous in hiking, and it's dangerous in God's word. So don't stop listening to sermons just because they hurt. Listen for what God is saying to you in the pain and obey him. And realize, as difficult as it is to hear painful sermons, it's far harder to preach them. I don't like preaching painful sermons, but I, I feel like my responsibility to you, first and foremost, is to teach you God's word because that's where life is found. So here's my commitment to you. I'll do my best to preach God's word to you, even when it hurts. And here's what I ask of you and what Paul asks of you as well. When it hurts, don't tune it out. Don't leave. Listen for what God is saying to you in the midst of that and, and seek to obey him. Enduring through the pain is how God works to change you and make you more like Jesus. So church, this is a Bible. Maybe for some of us here, everything I've just said today feels really simple and basic. Maybe you feel like that player who told the coach, uh, coach, could you slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. But you know what? Slow is not a bad thing. Most of the time, growth and maturity don't come from learning new things. They just come from taking the things we already know and working them deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives and reminding ourselves of them again and again until they begin to reshape us and make us more like Jesus. So my encouragement to you this week, cherish God's word. Read the word, trust the word, obey the word, listen to the word, talk about the word with friends, read it more, build your life around it because this is the most basic fundamental ingredient for us being the church that God wants us to be and calls us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that you've told us who you want us to be and what it takes to do that. And I pray that you would give us ears to listen, that we would be obedient, that we would trust you, we would see your goodness in our lives. God, be at work in us to give us a deeper hunger and thirst for you each day. In Jesus' name, amen.